Oh, we are going to start off this week's Blind Boy podcast on a very cheerful note because I'm going to read you out a, p- a piece of poetry that I was sent in by the actor Henry Cavill and it's a really, it's a quite a good piece of poetry. This is called Daffodil. Spend ten pence on the bedridden Jesuit's chest. His breasts are a register. Thrust cash in his money lungs. Float his throat on the stock market. Suck tuppence off his collarbone. Swipe your debit card through his tortured mind. Stick your debt up his hole. It's what he wants. His eyeballs are your creditor. Let him pay your mortgage. Stick his debt up your hole. His hole is greedy for your debt. Excellent stuff there by Henry Cavill, who he's quarantining. Henry Cavill is quarantining in Monaco. And if you liked that poem, you're in for a treat because Henry Cavill has given up acting and while he's quarantining in Monaco, he's writing an entire book of poetry which is only about Jesuits, Carmelites, Benedictines, Franciscans, Cistercians, Trappists and Finance. So there you go. Maybe a, a lucky... A lucky patron on the Patreon this month might receive in the post Henry Cavill's handwritten poem Daffodil as a one-off, as a one-off piece. I'm sure Henry wouldn't mind. Um, do you know what, man? I've stopped. I've stopped referring to it as coronavirus. I know. I just, I just, I've stopped because I'm getting sick of hearing it and I don't want this podcast to date when someone's listening to it in the future. So instead, I'm going to refer to it as the goblin of strange and uncertain times. Why are you not leaving your house? Because the goblin of strange and uncertain times is standing at the end of the road. Why are you wearing a mask on your face? Because the goblin of strange and uncertain times wants to stick his fingers in my mouth. Why are you not going to Aldi and instead you're ordering all of your food online? Because the goblin of strange and uncertain times will steal my food. Why are you not visiting your elderly mother and hugging her because the goblin of strange and uncertain times will threaten her life I'm coming to terms with the goblin of strange and uncertain times Um, I miss certain things in particular I really miss going to the gym because it gave narrative to my day like I'm someone I'm kind of lucky enough with the goblin of strange and uncertain times because I work from home anyway. Aside from gigs, which I'd be doing maximum one a week. Six days of the week, I'm kind of at home anyway, working from home. So for me, it's not a huge impact. And I'm a bit of a shut-in. But I miss going to the fucking gym. I, because, I tell you what I miss. I miss the narrative that it added to my day. My day doesn't have narrative anymore. My day has getting up 
and going to bed and not getting much outdoors. I do my run, but it's not the same, you see, because my run, my runs aren't enjoyable. My runs are stressful because when I go to run, a lot of people just aren't social distancing and people are walking three abreast on footpaths and that then is stressful. Instead of me getting on at my day and going, I'm running, I'm listening to a podcast, I'm listening to music, I'm now internally policing the behaviour of strangers in my head, which is stressful. So it's just, look at them running past, look at them breaking the rules, who do they think they are? And that's my little pocket of stress as I run because of the goblin of strange and uncertain times. So I can't wait for that. I can't wait to not give a roaring fuck how far people are standing apart. I hate hate that when I'm running and I see two people stopped speaking to each other on the street having fun that I'm analysing the distance between where they're standing or whether or not they're conscious of my space because that's that's another thing that the Goblin of Strange and Uncertain Times does it has changed how I view my environment and world and it's changed how I view the world into quite a, an incredibly neurotic way. I'm someone who struggled with mental health issues, anxiety. There's a lot of codependencies that go with that. When my anxiety would get bad, I'd also veer a little bit into hypochondria. I'd be very conscious of germs and bacteria or conscious of, of people. So fucking goblin of strange and uncertain times causes me to behave in ways that are neurotic whereby if the goblin of strange and uncertain times wasn't present I'd be going fuck man I shouldn't be thinking like this I should not be looking at door handles and being worried about touching them I shouldn't be concerned about a person's breath this would be deeply distressing for me and I'd be saying to myself I need to now examine my mental health because I'm I'm slipping back into anxiety. So I don't like that. But I'm a positive person. As you know from listening to this podcast, I accept the, the inevitable suffering of being alive. I embrace it. I embrace what I can't change. And when I'm faced with something I can't change, I don't react to it. I proact. That's not a word. But I I don't get reactive to things. To be reactive means to resist, to allow anger, to allow anxiety, to attach myself to the the desire for that thing to not exist. I can't attach myself to to the desire that the goblin of strange and uncertain times doesn't exist. Instead, I just notice that they're there and they're not going away for a while and they want to chill out and that's their business. So... And I'm 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 cherishing the small things. I'm cherishing all the things I used to enjoy but took for granted, which is that's a nice one. I can't fucking wait for my first proper pint. I can't wait to be in a pub with friends. I can't wait to f- get out of the fucking country and go on holidays. When those things happen, I can't wait to go to a fucking restaurant. 
when these things happen, which they will, it's going to feel so mindful and beautiful to do something which was taken away. And there's a great opportunity in that. There's a great opportunity to, to not take for granted the trappings of, of freedom, basically. The trappings of, of freedom and living in a kind of okay society if you have a degree of privilege. Can't wait to support my favourite pub in Limerick Pharmacia when it reopens and have an old cocktail, have a vegan sour and a zombie. Um, which hopefully will be by the end of the summer. Hopefully. So the other thing that the Strange and Uncertain Times Goblin is doing is it give, it's giving me a nice kick up the arse into getting my streaming set up, sorted. Every week I'm getting closer and closer to my goal. If you were on Twitch this week at all, you might have caught me doing some live audio streaming. I had a lovely fucking evening. It was just... I streamed... A lovely video of a fish tank. And I just spoke over it. To whoever was online. And they asked questions. And we had a conversation. And it was like a live podcast. And I played the piano music of Ryoichi Sakamoto. Over the background. And I was just chatting to people online. Trying to get the audio on my stream. As good as the audio sound of my microphone here. And I fucking did it. So... Twitch.tv forward slash the blind boy podcast. I don't have a regular schedule yet. That will be happening when I know that my everything is shit hot and perfect very soon. But you'll catch me on it sporadically. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind boy podcast. Have you seen actually this week, which is thoroughly enjoyable? Twitter have finally started putting like notifications on Donald Trump's tweets if he says something that's untrue. So if if he spreads a conspiracy theory or just says a fucking lie, they will put like a sticker on it that points you towards the correct information. So they're essentially flagging the president of America's words by saying this isn't true, click this, here's the actual facts. And Trump has gone apeshit, right? He was tweeting about, he was accusing California of some type of electoral fraud. Saying that California, that there's fraud in, in their elections. He's I, What he's doing is, I think he's scared that he's going to lose in October and won't get a second presidency. So he's sowing the seeds early so that he can say that it's rigged and that there's fraud so that he doesn't actually have to lose if he does. That's what he's doing. But he's saying things about how their mail order voting system works in California. That's just lies. Straight up lies. And now Twitter put a tag under his tweet that just says, yeah, this is lies. Click on this for the actual facts. And Danny's not happy. Danny's not happy at all. So I'm going to read out Danny's angry tweets at Twitter as your drunk limerick aunt. Because I think tonight... She needs she needs she needs to get aired out tonight. So I'll set the scene. Again it's the evening, she likes the evening, it's a lovely May evening with that slanty peach sun coming in the window. 
she's wearing a satin nightgown that she got in pennies and she hasn't been outside the gaff in a while because of the goblin of uncertain times so the liquor cabinet is bare she doesn't have her bottle of merlot and she doesn't have her gin and tonic instead all she has left is a half open bottle of Parno from 2014 and a can of lilt that she found at the back of the press and she's drinking warm lilt and old Parno in a coffee mug as the peach sun glistens in the window and reflects off her satin dressing gown and she says Twitter is now interfering in the 2020 presidential election they're saying that my statement in May on mail-in ballots which will lead to massive corruption and fraud is incorrect based on fact checking by fake news CNN and the Amazon Washington Post Twitter is completely stifling free speech and I as president will not allow it to happen. So there was Donald Trump's most recent tweets as your drunk limerick and. So this week what I have is a particularly enjoyable live podcast that I recorded a good few months back in Galway and I like putting out live podcasts during the strange and uncertain times of the Goblin because we miss the fucking live feeling. I miss doing live gigs so much. I miss being in a room full of people. I miss the sense of community. I miss the lovely people that come to my live podcasts. I miss the laughter in the room. This is the first time in over 10 years that I've gone this long without being in front of a live audience which is really odd for me I haven't seen a live audience in 4 months so I have a live podcast here that I recorded with John Romero and Brenda Romero this is like they're video games developers based in Galway right but this is the video game equivalent of interviewing Bob Dylan and Kate Bush. Alright, John Romero is responsible for such video games as Quake and Doom. Okay, just unspeakable levels of legendariness in video games. Brenda has been in video games since 1981. These are pioneers and experts in their field in a field which I mean video games in the early 80s are going to be they were pretty niche even up until the 90s no one was taking them seriously now video games are the most important industry in the world I mean just to put it into context like I'm I'm now trying to become a streamer on Twitch part of that is playing video games there's more opportunity for me to earn a living and to have cultural relevance playing video games and commenting on them than there is if I try and release music, which is just pointless. Music 
you release music if you love it and you want to put it out. But if you want to earn a living making music, unless you're huge, forget about it. So it's always a pleasure talking to experts and pioneers. And it was a fascinating fucking conversation. So that's what I'm going to play for you. Before I get into it, of course, it is time for the Ocarina Pause. I'm going to play for you this week, uh, but lightly. Not the Ocarina, the Aztec Death Whistle, which is an ancient Aztec instrument, which is supposed to sound like a person screaming for their life. So here is the Aztec Death Whistle Pause, and you'll probably hear an advert for something, or me begrudgingly reading out an advert. If you play it lightly, actually, it doesn't sound like someone screaming for their life at all. It just seems like a wheezy ocean. It's competing with the chair, actually. Let's see if we can get the squeaky chair and the Aztec death whistle going together. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty Naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions, I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. Duet. some depressing sounds so there you go that was the Aztec death whistle pause for some advertising Um, you know the crack look uh, I'm not going to have gigs for a long time because of the goblin of uncertain times I will tell you that right now I am planning a brand new Australia and New Zealand tour for when that is allowed I can't give you any dates 
Um, I have a Vicar Street gig in August. Most of you still have your tickets for that. According to the roadmap of Ireland, that gig is probably going to go ahead. By August, they said the theatres can open. And my show is technically a theatre show. So I reckon maybe by August I might be back gigging. I don't know. Um, but look, I don't have gigs. All that income is gone. Uh, I incurred a lot of debt. You know the crack. Bad time for performers. So my sole source of income is the Patreon page. That's the only way I can earn money right now. You've been absolutely sound as fuck. You're keeping me going. Alright. My bills are getting paid. Thank you so much to every single person who's becoming a patron. People who are listening to this podcast. Honest to fuck, lads. Alright. If I didn't have the, if I didn't have this, I'd know what the fuck I'd be doing. I I'd I'd be very, very worried. I'd be very, very worried. Cause I've got bills and on top of bills I've got debt for cancelling a gig in London. So just thank you so much, alright? Um, and what I've, what I've started to do with the Patreon, each month, I'm going to announce the first person next week, I'm going to announce it. Each month, I'm picking one patron. And this one patron, I'm going to send you a one-of-a-kind, hand-drawn image by me. I'm going to pick you out on Patreon at random, and I'm going to send you a drawing in the post, alright, that's signed, and it's by my hand. And it's fucking one of a kind. And there'll be not, no other one like it. So. That's just a thank you. It's a thank you to all the people who have been really sound. The ones who have stuck. Uh, being patrons. And the new patrons that I have. Mainly people who are still able to work from home. And just thank you so much. Thank you so much. So if you want to become a patron of the podcast. Once a month. If you're listening to the podcast every week. Look you know. It's a fair bit of labour for me to be doing it. It's my job. It's my job. So if you're listening to the podcast every week, there's the option of paying me for the listening that you do, for the f- the four hours of podcast I make a month. Pay me once a month, price of a pint, price of a cup of coffee, all right? If you can't afford that, you don't have to, all right? The people who can afford it, please consider paying for the podcast and you're also paying for the people who can't afford it it's a model based on kindness and soundness pays my fucking bills I'm happy you all get a podcast and now one lucky person a month is going to get a hand drawing in the post a great arrangement a great arrangement I have to say follow me on twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast to see me live streaming which is something that's going to be happening several times a week I'm going to be doing video games, just chatting with you like a live podcast. I'm going to be doing music, doing live fucking music, making songs in the moment based on your suggestions. I've got a loop pedal in the post that'll be arriving next week. Um, What else? Oh, Instagram. I finally managed to get my name changed on fucking Instagram. The name that I had on Instagram was Rubber Bandits Official. I got a change to Blind by Boat Club, finally, after a long time trying to get it done. Someone had opened a Blind by Boat Club Instagram account with three followers that they didn't use, and it took a long time for me to get that name. Because, I don't know, look, 
as you know, look, I, I started off my career, me and Mr. Chrome, as the Rubber Bandits. But we've only re-released three songs since 2013. And in that time, as me, Blind Boy, I've had a lot of TV series and fucking two books and 150 podcasts. So the Rubber Bandits is just a hobby. And my actual job is Blind Boy. So my social media should reflect that, really. Do you know what I mean? So I finally got the name changed on Instagram. Blind by Boat Club. Give it a follow. Nice and easy and simple. If you're looking for me. So here we go. Look, an in-depth history and context of video games. If you don't give a fuck about video games and this isn't something that you're interested in. Trust me, the way that we spoke about it. You don't have to know about video games. You don't have to care about them. Brenda in particular frames video games as art and they're both really interesting people and they're pioneers experts and it was a privilege to be able to record this conversation basically so here we go john and brenda romero and just for my american listeners who are going to be shouting at the podcast at one point at the start i insist to john that he is from arizona when he is in fact from New Mexico. God bless him, he didn't correct me, but I really got mixed up between the state of Arizona and the state of New Mexico. I apologise. What's the crack? I don't know. Every day there's crack. Yeah, every day. I didn't get you fucking water. Now, I don't know what's going on. Keen, who's backstage, can you bring two small glasses of uh, water out if you wouldn't mind? I think he can hear me. How about that? Sorry about that. I just brought out one single piece of water for myself. Not even enough for me. Just a piece. One piece. One small piece of water. Um, the first obvious question before we get into video games is, what the fuck are you doing in Galway? It's, it is. It's the, it's the most obvious question we get all the time. Do you want to answer? We're making video games. <laughs> yeah, but like, like, there's loads of places to make video games. Why Galway? Um, Galway's so where you play bongos. Well, yeah, which is <laughs> far removed from video games. Um, we so I, the the short version of the story, I guess, is I was a Fulbright scholar to Ireland, which makes me sound way smarter than I actually am. But what, uh, what is a Fulbright scholar? That's one of those things I just hear on television. Well, so it means that uh, it basically means that the two governments get together and they say we want somebody to study this and to give us suggestions, and so. Ireland wanted suggestions, uh, and several universities wanted suggestions about what they could do with their video game programs uh, to, cr- to improve the industry here. So, uh, so I was picked for that. So we came over and we drove all around. I mean, we were everywhere. We sideways rain in Donegal, down to Cork, everywhere. And, um, and then we were here for two and a half months, and then like, I, so we were in Galway for less than 24 hours, right? Mm-hmm. We were in Galway yeah. for less than 24 hours, and then we... When we left, we were going back across the, uh, on the ferry over to, over to um, Wales and then down to London and so on. But we knew, like, I was just like, we're going to, we got to come back here. Like, it was, there was, um, I mean, every, I think everybody says it, but it's, there's no place I'd rather be. And we can be anywhere in the world we want to be. <laughs> Thank you, Kate. <laughs> we have enough water for all of Ireland. We now. do. <laughs> Um, did you feel like, because you're Irish-American, Yeah. did you feel like a, a, 
a deep genetic call or was it just this place is nice? Um, both? Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, what does a deep genetic call feel I like? Don't, you know? I like, don't know because I'm from <laughs> Ireland, but I do. <laughs> but like, I just came back from Australia and I was talking to a dude in Australia and he was indigenous Australian, but also Irish. And he came back to Wexford and he just said he felt something different. It's just he's like something about here reminds me of home. Kirk Cobain had it as well. Kirk Cobain is from Cork, I believe, and he came to Cork, and Kirk yeah. Cobain said something about this place just mm. talks to me. Well, the, my family would have been from Skibbereen originally. Go away, really? Yeah, the Donovans. So, um, so I felt. I mean, we were there as well, uh, but it's you know you don't get that far from it. I mean, it's just it was just a generation or two, um, and so my. Great grandfather left uh, left Cobe from Skibbereen when he was twelve. He was uh, he was a stowaway on a boat into New York, which is ridiculous to think like the the odds of me even being here. So then um, you know you don't get very far from that. I mean, I had to go to mass on Sunday, and you know I had all the all the appropriate guilt that I needed to have growing up. And um, you know we had roasts on Sunday, so there was loads of it. I mean, I even was you know like I had to memorize like who's the high king of Ireland, Brian Brew. You know what was I like? When's the War of Independence? You know, Gurv Milmahagets. Like I was, you know, I was. I, I, you, you couldn't get very far. So when I came back here, it felt I felt. Oh my goodness, like if there was a scale of how comfortable that I feel in Silicon Valley versus how comfortable that I feel in Galway, it's not even close, you know. I'm like we're my only regret about coming here is that we didn't come ten years sooner. Wow. Yeah, easily. Wow. <laughs> and John, you're from uh, the place that Albuquerque is in, I forgot the name of the state. <laughs> you mean Arizona? Arizona, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, you know, yeah, John, it wasn't one of those. Yeah, Arizona. Next question. It's the a pretty big place. <laughs> you have no the opposite of grass yeah. in Arizona. The opposite of Ireland, for sure. And um, I think Irish and Mexicans have a lot in common. You know, there's a, and I'm Native American as well, so uh, there was a lot of similarity. Um, and I just, I love grass, especially if it's mowed. Can and, I tell uh, you, do you want to hear an interesting Irish-Mexican fact? So there was, there was a group called the San Patricios, the San Patricios yeah. but yeah. do you know the origin of the term gringo? I do. The, how yeah. green the grass grows, yeah. There's my fact out the window because they knew what it was. <laughs> I was going. the grass, yeah. So the term gringo comes from the San Patricio Brigade, who were Irish lads, who used to sing with the green, green grass at home. Yeah. And the Mexicans were like, I don't know what they're singing, but it sounds like gringos. Yep. And that's where the, the word comes from. There that's you go. Right. Now, um, <laughs> what the fuck was it like making video games in the, the early 80s? Oh. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I programmed games all through the entire 80s. Uh, it was really great. But like, how do you even, like, okay, now if someone wants to get into video games, like, video games are such a huge part of culture. But, like, back then, what the fuck? Like, how do you even decide this is something you want to do or have the confidence to know that this could be a career? I, you know, I got... I, I, my brother was a musician before me, and he wanted to grow up and be a rock star, so he sort of primed my parents for how ridiculous somebody could be. <laughs> <laughs> 
But it's, there wasn't, like, there was no, it was in the early 80s, there was no industry, right? Like, I mean, I, people were still, even when I graduated college in the late 80s, it was, well, okay, now what are you going to do for a real job? Um, and I just kept making games, and it's been 38 years now. But it was, I don't know, like, it was, it was great. It was like any new industry, you know? You didn't know where it was going, and you felt, you knew you were on the verge of something, and... I'm going to steal something I know you always say. I don't know if you're going to say it, so I'll just steal it. He stole your gringos thing. But well, he so didn't steal it. He just knew it beforehand. Yeah, so I know it beforehand. So he, um, he said, you know, like, if I can just grow up and do nothing but make video games my whole life, like, if I can do this, like, it's all I want to do. And, like, he's done it. Like, unless he somehow goes into insurance in the next 10 years. But Is it true that you are the, the longest-running woman in the video games industry? Yeah. 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 Holy fuck. <laughs> Since 81. Yeah. When Since she was 81. 15, her first full-time job was in the game industry. Yeah, unbelievably. How, how the fuck do you get a job in video games at 15? Like, this did you even know what it was? This yeah. is a good story if you so want to hear it. Actually, <laughs> like, literally, first day of work. Like, what, what happens? So the well, first, this was, it's the most ridiculous job anybody could ever have. So... I, um, so here's how I even got the job. I, was, uh, I grew up in northern New York, which is covered in snow most of the time. Um, and so I was in the bathroom smoking uh, because you, you want to go outside. And I was fifth, not that you should smoke. You're not going to get a job in the game industry smoking or anything. But, um, but I was standing Rule there. number one, smoke in the toilet. Yeah. Go on, Brenda. <laughs> yeah. So, so then uh, this woman came in. She was actually she, she was 15. And she was looking for a cigarette. So... Um, to be polite, she strikes up a conversation with me because I gave her one, and she said, "Do you, uh, you happen to have a job?" No. And did I uh, had I ever heard of wizardry, which I hadn't? Had I ever heard of Surtech? Also hadn't. And she said, "Have you ever heard of D and D?" And I did because my mother. That's Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, yeah my yeah. mother, my Irish Catholic mother, bought me Dungeons and Dragons when I was eleven. <laughs> I, she couldn't have known what it was, right? But. Um, so I knew what D&D was, and, and so my first day of work was, this is an Apple II, and I saw a color on the screen for the first time. Like, if anybody's ever put on VR for the first time, and they go, oh my god. Like, for me, seeing color on a computer was the same type of magic. And so my first day on the job was playing a game. And I was a kid who was 15 who was paid to memorize games so that if you would call and say, I would say wizardry hotline, and then somebody would say, how do you kill the wizard on the 10th level? And I would say, well, you have to go down to the fourth level. On the fourth level, you get the blue ribbon. The blue ribbon will take you through the, the private elevator door. You take the private elevator to the ninth level. You go out. There's a door on your immediate left. You go into the corner. There's a teleporter that goes down to the 10th level. There's a series of seven hallways, and at the end of the seventh hallway, there's Wardena. And if you kill him, you win the game. My brain is full of this garbage right now still. <laughs> that, but full of it. The mad thing there. So when I was a kid and I used to get Nintendo games, I'd see it, there was a, an American number. Yeah. And I just thought it was, I didn't think it was real. I, did, mm -hmm. I didn't think. <laughs> well, I wasn't for all the games. How many people would ring a day? Oh, it was constant. There was three lines and, hello, uh, Wizardry Hotline, please hold. Wizardry Hotline, please hold. And they'd fill up, yeah. I... But what's the purpose? Like, you're literally trying to help people to win a game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, this was, I was a human FAQ. I was the internet. I was the answer <laughs> you would Google for, Phone except net. you would call me, because there wasn't an internet to look on at the time. Well, like, but what's the incentive for a games company to have that? Um, well, some companies charged money for it. Ah, okay. They didn't. They didn't. But the incentive is, is like if you're playing a game and 
and you really liked it. You know what? I don't think it was Nothing. that altruistic. I think it was because they were getting calls at home. <laughs> I do. And so I think they set this up so people would stop calling them at home. Because their, na their, their name is Serotech. Yeah. Serotech software, so they would just look in the phone book and call them. Okay. <laughs> I think that's probably why it happened. And John, you... So John has developed... Have you ever heard of Doom? And Quake? Wolfenstein. Uh, and, and Wolfenstein. Yeah. Um, like, is it fair to say that, like, the, the games that you've made, they're like the Sergeant Peppers of games. Like, they literally <laughs> changed the, what games were. Like, is, is Doom the first 3D shooter, or was there ones before it? Uh, well, yeah, shooters kind of started in 1974, and they were very slow, and only turned 90 degrees and moved very, you know, very slowly. Um, and ours were like the first real fast shooters. Um, and getting it that fast allowed us to start developing the language of what that kind of design was going to be. And Wolfenstein was the first really good one that we made. It was our fourth shooter. What year was Wolfenstein? 20, uh, 1992 on May 5th. And, uh, and so that was, that was the beginning of the fast, like the actually well done fast shooter. But Doom is where we kind of got it to a point where there was enough design in it and, and enough of a really cool environment that it was something that everyone could see as the future of this kind of game. And, uh, and then we did Quake, which is the first fully 3D shooter and it played over the internet and it was the first game to allow you to look around with a mouse. Um, and, uh, and, it, and it is also like the blueprint for a lot of the stuff that you see today. Call of Duty still has some code in it from Quake because it used the Quake engine. Uh, Half-Life, you know, you name it. These games were all kind of influenced by that. Um, yeah. <laughs> just a, a quick question there, just because I don't know the answer. Um, if, like, Call of Duty is still using part of an engine that you designed, does that mean you get a small bit of money? No, uh, it might. Uh, <laughs> I left it software in 1996, and that was, okay. that was it. Yeah. You're sometimes credited with, as the person who introduced extreme violence to video games. Huh. Well, Would you disagree or agree with high that? High-speed violence, maybe? Was violence <laughs> there was violence in games before that. I mean, have you ever played any arcade games in the 80s? <laughs> yeah, but that, was that not just shooting spaceships, though? Uh, well, it was still You're violence. not shooting a Nazi into the face with a gun. Mortal Kombat? Yeah, Mortal Kombat was before Doom. Yeah. It came out before Doom, yeah. Oh, okay. I think, Actually, it, was yeah, same, it, was, I think it was probably the same year, 1993 the, earlier. The, on December 9th, so Doom is released on December 10th. I'm kind of arguing against you, I guess. Doom is released on December 10th, and on December 9th, 1993, on the U.S. Uh, Congress, on the floor of the U.S. Congress, they were debating violence in video games, talking about... Mortal Kombat and Night Trap, which then were considered to be the absolute pinnacle of, of horror in games. And unbeknownst to them, in Dallas, Texas, they're about to release Doom the next day. <laughs> the next day. <laughs> so it was quite possibly the worst slash best time release ever. <laughs> what? Cause when, so when I think of the, the culture of late 80s, early 90s, especially America, I think of, we said the Reagan era, mm. I think of moral panic with protecting children from ideas of sex and violence. What was that environment like? And do you think it'd be different to today? 
I, I think for us, I mean, for us, we're like in high school in the 80s, and it was mostly about like avoiding nuclear war. Everybody was really afraid of a nuclear war happening, and other than that, everyone was playing games in the arcade. Was that, was that, so that was like a thing that you'd think about every day? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. mean, I grew up, it, because it was in northern New York, there were the Messina Locks. So Messina is a city about 30 miles uh, from where I grew up, and the Messina Locks controls access to all the Great Lakes. So they thought for sure that that was going to be one of the places. Um, gosh, it's funny to think about that. Like, I remember... Was that like I, your climate anxiety? Because you know the way like, kids today are genuinely getting anxiety over what's going to happen with the climate. Was that the equivalent yeah, for... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't worry about it as much as... I didn't worry about it as much as you did. I mean, you lived on a military base. Yeah, well. I was actually in England for uh, most of my high school, which was... Yeah, coming from California, we moved to England to be closer to Russia because my father was in the, the, uh, the spy program doing reconnaissance. I have to ask you about that. <laughs> 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 Your fucking dad was a spy. Yeah. It's stepdad. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah my stepdad yeah. used to have stuff, mail coming to the house with someone else's name on it. I was like, why do they keep on delivering the wrong mail? <laughs> Did you know your father, your stepfather was a spy or No, not until way later after that. What did you think he was? Uh he I just thought he worked at the Air Force base. Didn't tell me what he did, but he was always off uh in countries where if something happened, the government would never say that he actually was there. So he was like a deep spy. He was well, he had top secret clearance and he was he was the one who basically had to get the um the recorded uh, the, all the, the recorded uh, videos and photographs off of the, the um, black boxes on the, on the planes and get them off those black boxes onto tape so they can analyze them. I had such a boring so, and, he had to, and he had to do it. <laughs> he had to do it immediately when the, the plane landed. So wherever the spy plane was downed or wherever it was forced to land or something ran out of gas, depending on what was going on, he had to go there to actually get the stuff off before it was bombed or they were taken hostage or whatever. Have you ever asked him about uh, UFOs? <laughs> no, I didn't. W why not? <laughs> That'd be the first thing I'd be asking. It's like if he worked with spy planes. Didn't believe in UFOs, so I guess I didn't ask him you, about You don't it. believe in UFOs? No. Did you not see any around, because aren't most U UFOs around where you're from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> haven't, haven't been out to Area 51, so. Yeah, I'll ask him. I heard uh, the real story. an <laughs> amazing theory recently about, I heard the most plausible explanation for Roswell, which they claimed, right, that yes, there was a crash in Roswell, yes, bodies were recovered, but apparently the Russians had basically gotten, like, kids and grown them in, in a contorted way, and, like, kids that were, like, abandoned, and had like made their heads larger, seriously, and put them into this craft and crashed it in, in, in America as a way to freak out America. So America are just dealing with this crash and it's like, what the fuck are these things? That's a pretty cool conspiracy theory. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's plausible, like. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a good video game. And then they're, then they're going, I don't know what the fuck of Russia are doing, but I'm not fucking with them because I don't know what that is. <laughs> It's the most plausible thing I've, I've ever heard. And I, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, regarding that theory, you've never, you've never seen a UFO in, in uh, Arizona? No. No? 
Did you see any UFOs? Anywhere. Just anytime I get Never. Americans on, I ask them about no, UFOs. I, I did in, uh, in 1979, I did. It was uh, Close Encounters, this movie that came out. <laughs> did, did, do you think uh, your childhood with a, with a stepfather who's a spy, did that influence you in any way in, in the games you make? Uh, no, not at all. No, I was just... But um, you made a game about a guy who kills Nazis and stuff like... That was a long time after. That was like 13 years after I started programming games. Uh, so I started programming. <laughs> I started programming games in 1979, and uh, it was because I loved arcade games. And I found out that the local college, uh, I could play games at the local college. So I went up to the local college in the summertime of '79, and I f started playing the games there that were not like arcade games because they were on a mainframe, which is a giant computer that fills a room. And, uh, and I found out that I could actually program that computer, so I started asking the college students what they were typing in and was writing it down, and then I got on a terminal and started to, to experiment with the basic programming language. And then uh, when I couldn't be at the college, I would go to all the local stores because they had computers, Radio Shack and stuff like that. And I just started learning how to program for probably about three years. Uh, I was programming anywhere I could the college and stores until we finally got a computer at the house and then I could just not go outside anymore. <laughs> Did you find that like when you were going to the college, were, were the students helpful? Like, were they just Yeah, like, they were totally helpful. <laughs> I couldn't believe that I didn't get kicked out of there because I was 11. <laughs> I wasn't actually going to college. Uh, yeah, they were really helpful and someone, I think that someone got tired of me asking questions and then gave me a book. Uh, HP basic book here <laughs> read this so then that was that was great I love the book um, one thing I want to know about and I asked you backstage like so both of you come from quite poor backgrounds you didn't grow up with a lot of money and when I think of America I think of it's access to third level education is very difficult if you don't have money yeah so how did you both access third level education or did you I didn't go to college yeah, he went and then felt he was wasting his time and left. Um, but, but how did you even... Tr I already learned how to program on my own, so I didn't really need to... But was it community college or was it... Community college, yeah. yeah and I, I was already published in making games by that time. I went to, like, I, I wanted to go, I wanted to be an accountant because, and mind you, I'd been in the game industry now for three years at this point. But it wasn't like, nobody says I want to grow up and be a game designer. Like, what kind of crazy thing is that to say, right? I didn't even know the term game designer, and we would have called them programmers then anyway. Um, but I, uh, I wanted to become an accountant, and so I went to Clarkson University. Uh, and it was, I think, 24000 a year. Some, and this is in 1984 dollars. Um, and we had no money. I mean, I remember, like, when I was in college, I, I played poker you know, to get extra money to pay my rent and stuff like that. And I, it's not that I'm good at poker, it's that I'm sober and they were drunk. Um, <laughs> so I didn't cheat, but I was just, you know, it didn't take much, right? But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I mean, I, if you don't have money, the thing about it is, is if you don't have money, at least when I was there, you can get loans and if you're smart, you get some, you get grants and you get this and that. But the problem is, is that I graduated school in 89 and I paid off my student loans in 2003. And that's a long time. 14 years. Yeah, yeah. So that's, so basically kids graduate with a huge amount of debt. Um, in, in nowadays, you know, it's, they can graduate with a uh, hundred thousand, uh, more than that, 200,000 
dollars worth of debt. And that's just completely unacceptable and untenable. You know, it just means that the people who start behind are, you know, get out of college and then they're even further behind. That's just, it's just wrong. I just, I think it's you know, completely ridiculous. Like I've, I saw today that USC, University of Southern California, is doing, and I just saw it, like literally somebody posted this on Facebook and I saw it tonight, that they're offering free education to people who earn less than 80,000 which in California is like earning, I don't know, it's like minimum wage there. But, um, but you know, that's like a step in the right direction. I mean, I think for me, for us, code was a way out. You know, making games allowed us to, to put food on the table, to, have, to be able to not have the lights go off, to always have a roof over our head, to not worry about being homeless, to not, you know, to have a car to drive or gas in the car or, you know, access to like the basics of life. And everybody should have that. Everybody should be able to, to come from wherever they are and get education and go further. Everybody. And you shouldn't be hampered because you didn't have enough money. That's so wrong. So even though here I know there's fees and they're going up, you know, I, 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 the education is a right. People should be able to access that. I just I feel very strongly about it. Mm -hmm. um, would you get a rapturous round of applause in America if you expressed that opinion? If I were speaking to students strapped with debt, yeah. <laughs> they would um, love that. <laughs> but, you know, like, I was teaching at a university. I won't say which one, but it was, they had a professional master's program, and it was 65000 a year, like... What? Can I swear? Yeah, fuck yeah. Okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Whatever you want. What in the fuck, you know? Like that was just, it was such a, it's like the, the problem is, is then you just end up with a, a school full of privilege. Yeah. Right? And, and, and I remember this other incident, and this was also at a college where, um, where I taught, where they wanted to consistently know how this one student was doing. And I thought, well, why do you keep calling me about, like, is there something, is this, is there something I should be worried about? And it turned out that that student, no, there was nothing to be worried about. That student came from an underprivileged family, or sorry, no he didn't. That student came from an incredibly wealthy family and they wanted to make sure that that student was always happy and doing well because the yeah. parents might donate. Meanwhile, I have a student in the same class who is a single mother. Like, why aren't people calling to find out how she's doing? Because yeah. she's the one who needs the phone calls. She's the one who needs the support. And that really, that really colored the way I see um, private education in the U.S. Like, colored it as, it just painted it black. I just, it's just wrong. And w one of the things I noticed too, because I, I'd be quite supportive of, like I get frightened whenever I see student fees go up because mm -hmm. with any industry that's creative, you have to, not even creative, anything that's even entrepreneurial, you need to allow people to have space to fail. How the fuck do you get out of college and fail when the first thing you have to worry about is a 30 grand debt? It's impossible. You can't fuck up and you have to be able to fuck up if you want a success. Basically. Yeah. 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 Um, even today, right, video games is seen as a male dominated industry. Like, what was it like in 1981? Like, were you literally the, the only woman around? Funny enough, no. In the company that I started, where I started at Surtech, I was the fifth woman. And there were five guys, five women. And that was not, well, would it have been, it would have been more normal. Than, yeah, totally normal, yeah. Yeah, it would have been more normal. There were more the women in programming than there were men in the early days. Yeah, in the early days. What were. cultural thing happened that changed it? 
Um, She'll tell I, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I think, so like super high speed version is a women invented programming, Ada Lovelace. The most hardcore programming language was invented by Kathleen Booth, it's assembly language. Grace Hopper invents the compiler, COBOL, and names the computer, names bugs even, like a bug in a computer language. Um, the ENIAC, which was a main, first mainframe, programmed by an all-female coding team, including Kay McNulty, Irish-speaking from Donegal. She created um, the basic language. Yeah, uh, sister Mary Kenneth Keller. Kel with, Kenneth Keller, that's it. Uh, yeah, made basic. Anyway, so there was loads. What? Yeah. Sister Mary, what? Kenneth yeah. Keller. <laughs> Made basic programming language. The programming programming, yeah. Yeah, so this is, um, this is, my head is full of this Was stuff. she a nun? Yeah. What, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> Was this a job on the side? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Actually, I don't know. But yeah, I guess so. She was involved in the creation of basic. And was this, was, she, was this computer or was yeah. it like? No, this is, there's a picture of. <laughs> what the f there's a picture of her even standing by a computer, like all smiling in her full nun's habit. <laughs> there really is. You can look it up. Can you? Is there any kind of sociocultural explanation as to why it appears that computers were so open, that the environment was open to women then, and then something changed? Yeah. So this is. So here's what happened. They at around so 60s, coming into the 70s. Still lots of women, IBM is calling, measuring coding and girl hours. And then they realize that this computer stuff that seems like faddish and is gonna actually be way more important than they thought. They need to train lots of people. And in the 70s, it was, you know, it was a very misogynistic culture. I mean, we had ads. Um, if you look at some of the ads at the time, there's like a woman across somebody's yeah. you know, guy's lap and he's gonna spank her because she didn't make dinner right or something. Um, and so, uh, and I'm describing a real ad that wasn't, I wasn't making that one up. So when, when they said, okay, we need you to be trained and we're going to bring in this woman to train you, it was like, hell no. Oh. Right? So there's lots of instances of people replacing women as managers. And then because, because they need more coders, the value of coding starts to go up. And as that money becomes, because as these jobs become more valuable and aren't thought of as menial labor, which they were at the time, um, we see a lot more men come in, and as more men come in and the value goes up, women are sort of pushed out, and that's what happened. And do you feel as well there might have been an element of, um, do you know the way secretarial work or the idea of working with a typewriter would have been seen as quite feminine? Well, that's yes. what it was. Women were called computers. They were computing on those machines. That's where the term computer comes from. And it was from. secretarial work, so they just called it menial detail-oriented tasks. And, and would it have been seen as something that for a man to be involved in it would have uh, demasculated him? Well, you would, men at the time, hardware engineers were They glorified. made the computers. Yeah. So they fixed the hardware, and yeah. then the woman was the computer. Yeah. yeah. And so when did you start to see the more recent shift where like video game, game culture can be seen as kind of a toxic bro culture where women are very much shouted out and excluded. Do you feel a responsibility that you might have contributed to toxic video game bro culture? Uh, jeez. <laughs> I basically started it. <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I used to, we used to scream at each other playing deathmatch. I mean, it was really fun. Notice <laughs> used to? I still do. <laughs> Every yeah, every Thursday night we have a quake tournament in the office, um, and I just scream my head off. But it's an, it, but it's fun. It's not it's not like 
we mean it when we're yelling at each other. After we're just like, man, that was a great game. That was so awesome. And that culture does not exist in Candy Crush. Yeah. (laughs) But but at the same time, like, I don't know that there's like, I could also, I could also play Deathmatch and I have Deathmatched him and I've said all kinds of shit to him, right? And I don't necessarily think like, we don't necessarily look at hockey where people punch each other out and go, oh, that's a misogynistic bro culture because I could go into a rink and punch somebody out too. Yeah. Right. So, but I think where, where the problem comes from is, is when, is twofold. One, when we start to see this weird division, like nobody called me a female game designer until somewhere in the mid 90s wow and I never got those questions like what's it like to be a female programmer what's it like to be a female game designer like I don't know I haven't been a panda game designer I'm not really I don't know it's I am what I am so um, and then like just sort of the anonymous internet hurling you know when you start getting microphones and it's like what can I say to you what what is this thing I can find about you to pick on oh you're 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 saying things about people's gender or that sort of stuff and that's where like I don't feel I don't feel toxicity is by any sense limited to just bro versus not bro there's like toxicity is a, is like a black soup right i mean there's so much stuff people can be toxic about so you know i don't necessarily know that it's just that I mean, I've, you know, I've heard all kinds of garbage, you know, just walking around in World of Warcraft, you know, so. (laughs) So one of the things I wanted to do tonight was, like, I love video games. I love playing video games, but I wouldn't be, like, real obsessive into how video games are made and things like that. I'm quite happy to just consume them as an art form. And I wanted to try and keep tonight, for it to not be nerdy, because I was afraid that with people like ye, you just get asked nerdy questions all the time. We're nerdy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, I wanted to keep it more about the, the philosophy and the underpinnings of video games. But there's a few questions from Twitter that people really wanted to know specifically about. And a, a recurring question was, you had a video game, John, called Daikatana, which is considered... I, is it considered a flop? Is it considered a, a, a fabulous flop? What yeah, would you call yeah. It? yeah. The press was really, really bad uh, with Daikatana when it came out because I think it's a game that was supposed to that, that came out after Quake, so everybody's exp- you know expecting the best game on the planet, um, and uh, and there was just a lot of mistakes made during the making of Daikatana, so it didn't turn out as 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 well as as I was hoping, but it actually made money. You know, the game the game actually made the money uh, to pay for itself. Uh, where Deus Ex was really the game that took off and did really, really well and was game of the year. Um, at least Daikatana didn't pull the whole place down. But it wasn't a success. It wasn't a better than Quake type game. When I so if I was to if I was to talk about what I believe the Daikatana story to be based purely on what I've read online, I get this vision of Quake was huge and Doom was huge. And you had this office where it was like the end scene of Scarface, <laughs> where there's just like gold carpets and mountains of cocaine and everything going absolutely insane and money being funneled in. And then you come out with this game. It, how accurate is that? It's pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> it was but, a really cool space. Yeah, was that element of it true where it's like you, you just went drunk on success oh no and was, had this crazy opulent life no i was i was trying to give a lot of people um 
I, I, I brought a lot of people in, in on the team that were super passionate about what they did and I needed people that were really passionate about making levels and programming and all that. And, uh, and th but I didn't have like industry veterans on the team, which is what you really do need uh, to, to mentor other people and to, to know processes of development and how to get things done. So it was like the first job for almost everyone on the team and I was the only person who had ever made a game before. So it was like, oh, it's a school. <laughs> so it was like three years teaching this team of passionate people how to get a game made and, and get it out, which means that um, it's almost like you're starting over. You're starting to make a game from nothing versus a team who's been together for years and has 10 years of experience behind them. It's like, hey, everyone, we're going to make a game and you've never done before. And here's we're going to try and do it. You know, so it was a totally different situation. Um, but those people are, they're in the industry. They've been, you know, in the industry for a long time, 20 years now since Daikatana came out. And these, you know, the, on my team, there was at least 40 people um, and 120 in the entire company. And they're all still in the industry. So at least we got to, you know, bring a bunch of people uh, into, into the game industry. So that's an important thing. So I spoke earlier about, I think failure is essential for art to have a good attitude to, I, no, I don't believe failure exists in art. Because if I look at anything in, in my career, like my thing would have been uh, writing for television. So I'd have had a bunch of projects that I'd put a lot of work into and then they don't get picked up. But then what happens is that something which would have been considered, or oh, that didn't work or that didn't get picked up, those ideas or the things that I learned from them then turn into successes. Is video games like that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, like it's mostly I, like that. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Like it's like the there was a, a game, um, a role playing game that uh, I pitched on Kickstarter, which is sort of a very public way to succeed or fail. Like video games die all the time. You yeah. Know, like for every one that you might hear of, a hundred didn't make it. Um, and I so we pitched this Kickstarter and it failed. It failed spectacularly. And I remember barely sleeping. I mean, I've been in the industry at that point probably 30 years, uh, and being like, just like nobody was saying anything to me, but I, the silence was humiliating because yeah. you know you know everybody knows that you're tanking it, right? And and I don't know what I thought. Like people are going to come for my video game developer card. Not that we have one, but pretend that we did. Um, but I really felt like I don't know what I thought. And then it failed, and it failed publicly and spectacularly, and it was so liberating. Like, yeah. I'd fucked up, and I still kept going, right? And, and so then it, it was, makes failure not scary. It was freeing. It yeah. was freeing. It's like, I make, you know, I make mistakes every day, every day. Ask my kids probably many multiple times a day. Um, and it's like, it's okay, because sometimes, you know, so we were talking backstage about Black Sabbath, you know? It was a mistake that led to the sound that is heavy metal. Yeah. Like a series of, like, oh, that's, that's bad. Oh, that's a failure. That's a failure. Oh, that's... Black Sabbath. So it's, um, so no, I don't have a fear of failure. I mean, I think if you do fear it, if you don't like, you, you're, you're, if, if you're court in success, you're court in failure. And Absolutely. You, you have to have those two because you're going to get one or the other. But it's like the people who, if you're afraid of that, that automatically gets rid of a whole bunch of people. But if you are like willing to have both, hold both of those in your hand, like there's a chance you might succeed and you, it's, it's scary. Like which one are you going to get? But you just have to keep trying to, you know, polish that quartz as much as you can. Sometimes I, 
actively search for failure as part of my creative process to completely liberate myself. Hmm. So if I'm writing a short story, like I've got a short story in my last book uh, where the actor Gabriel Byrne on the set of The Usual Suspects figures out a way that he can create his own system restore points by snorting his own skin. (laughs) (laughs) That he saves up like bags of his skin from when he was like six and when he was 10 and then he snorts the skin and he can revisit himself internally when he was six years of age. And that started off as an idea that came into my head going, that's so fucking stupid and ridiculous that I have to turn this into 10,000 words. And it ended up being like a story that I'm really, really happy with. But that for me is, if the anxiety is this has to be good, why not go think of something fucking stupid and go, no, I'm going to run with this. And I'm going to see where this takes me. And I've immediately, at that. it's a bit like, it reminds me of the Buddhist principle of accepting and confronting death. If you start a project with an idea that you consider to be bad and investigate it with all your creativity, that, for me, will most likely end up in a success, rather than if I go at it in a very cognitive fashion where I you know, research my favorite writers mm. and I decide what do I consider to be a good story and it's very methodical. And if I do that, then I'm not getting to my soul. I'm not getting to the heart of me where, where creativity comes from. Because at, at the end of the day, it's fun and play. Creativity is always, it, it's that moment when you're a child and you're playing with something and you don't care what the Lego is going to be mm, yeah. because you're simply doing and acting. It's not about, I'm going to make something good that my parents will like. It's, I'm doing because doing is fun. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah like the coolest moments, uh, the coolest moments in video games, like if you're a video game player and you've said like, oh my God, like those, there's two moments in the game I'm currently working on where they're bugs. It wasn't intentional, it was a mistake. Something yeah. was overpowered and didn't work the way it was supposed to. And it, that's failure. And But somebody saw it and was like, that is so cool. And on the one hand, it's like, no, that's actually broken. That's way too powerful. But for me, it's like when I hear people say that sort of stuff, I'll take that failure and turn that into something people love. Can you talk about Romero Games, which is the company that you have now in Galway, and talk about, we'll say, something you're working on right now, but I understand it's, it's weird to talk about shit that isn't out yet. Uh, sure, yeah, I can talk about, so it's, um, we're working on a game called Empire of Sin, which is, um, it's going to be... <laughs> One uh, person, uh, yeah. <laughs> a little chirp that sounded like a, a sentient wren. Well, I can talk about, so in Empire of Sin, it is, I'll get more, well, we'll see. Empire of Sin, you play one of 14 mob bosses in Chicago during Prohibition, including Al Capone. Um, And we have, to my knowledge, this is the first game that will feature a Hurley as a weapon. (laughs) Yes! (laughs) (laughs) So Frankie Donovan. Frankie Donovan. He is a Hurley. Um, and uh, so, and this is the bug. This is the bug. But the thing I was talking about. So Frankie, he's got his hurley, and he's supposed to just. He gets more. He gets excited when he when he hits somebody with it, right? So um, it's supposed to just be like he hits one guy, and, and this charges him up, and he hits another. But the bug was that it didn't stop charging him up, right? So Frankie is in this place with like 15 guys, and he's just getting killing that guy and then that guy and then that guy and like basically when it's done like he's just waiting for somebody and so when when they tested it they were like 
this is the greatest fucking weapon ever in a game. <laughs> <laughs> so people, so people loved it. So, so funny enough, we're trying to keep that, right? Like, and, and it means that I have to figure out like this thing that actually is a failure. Like, what do I do for Frankie that is like his downside of this superpower and super Hurley he has. But yeah, so f anyway, so Frankie's in the game. And uh, like, Brenda, you were telling me like you're obsessed with prohibition. Yeah, but, well, but the Hurley was the Hurley. Is that a deliberate thing based on anything historical, or did you just decide to put a Hurley in a video game? Uh, well, so it is. Um, so my my family. So my great grandfather Patty Donovan during that time, he would have brought over. He would have also been running alcohol, um, and I didn't. I didn't want to put him in the game as Patty Donovan because I thought nobody's going to believe that. It's a very Irish name. It's too <laughs> Irish. It sounds like an American making up an Irish no, exactly. name. Exactly. I know. Exactly. I know. He was born on, on St. Patty's Day. Oh, for fuck's I know. sake. <laughs> I know. Like, I can show, I can prove it with a birth certificate even. Now I feel like I need to put that online to prove it. But so, so he changed his name to Frankie. Okay. Um, and so, so yeah, so he, there's a historical basis for that. And even during like prohibition times, there was this. Uh, there was a lot of tension between the Irish and Italian in yeah. Chicago's in the in Chicago and the Irish Americans, the Italian Americans. So, but yeah, I've had a long fascination. My mom wouldn't explain to me why this one bar in the town where I grew up never closed, and I would try to say, well, why didn't the cops just shut it down? And she didn't want to say, well, because they were looking the other way. They wanted to drink too. She didn't want to. She didn't want to say that. So she just kept evading the questions and inadvertently spawned a lifelong fascination with criminal empires. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit you designed the game I can't think of what it was called Schnachta something uh, Shia Khan Lot Sh yes. yes what is that I, I should know now because I'm supposed to be able to speak fucking Irish but I can't <laughs> you designed a, a, I thought it wasn't a video game was no. it it was a game about so I was trying I I just wanted to make so this is more on the non-video game like games as I guess it's games as art. That's the bit I'm trying to get my head around. So I I I wanted to make a game just with my own hands without code and I I think somebody like let's just imagine that you wanted to write something about particularly moving experience. You might do something like this. You might have a podcast yeah. about it. If there's a writer in the audience, you might write a book, you might write a song. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, but I'm a game designer, so I wanted to see if I could express a difficult emotion or a difficult situation in a game. So, uh, so I decided to talk, think about like why did my family go to the States? And it primarily comes from the Cromwellian invasion, losing of the land. So if you have any system that traumatically affects people, there's, if, if there's a system involved, which obviously there is, then I can make a game about it, because that's all games are. So I made a game um, in which you're, you are trying to, basically you can't win the game. So the English have already won the game. Um, and so the goal is... <laughs> you just summed up Irishness. <laughs> <laughs> so the goal of the game is to lose the least. Wow. Um, and so it's basically Irish people it, during that time, especially trying to, you know, to Heller, to Connacht, and trying to figure out uh, who trying to make sure that you have a place for your family and food for your family and if not then you end up going to at, at that point in time it was either to the states or to Barbados where many Irish were sent um, and so that's what the game's about um, and so your goal is to lose the least 
would you, would you have any interest in turning that into a video game? Because I think people would love it. Oh, well. Like, I want to fucking play against Cromwell. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I could make a video game about that. Like, this game, um, like, this game, what I did, because I really wanted to put everything into it. So, like, my mom's rosaries are inside the game. Like, I actually sewed the whole thing by hand, uh, and it's got two big panes of glass. Um, uh, so it's, it's, like, if you see, if you see a picture of it online, I mean, it's, you know, and it's a big how, how game. How would you, because that sounds like, uh, are you familiar with an artistic movement called the Situationists? No. So they were a, a movement in the 60s, the 50s and 60s. I think Yoko Ono was involved in them, but they used to make these things called Situationist boxes, hmm. which was a piece of interactive art that you'd put in a gallery, and it might... It could be like a medicine cabinet and you open it up and there's several different objects that you interact with. And when I was looking at those games that you yeah. were making that are like existing also as pieces of art, I was going, wow, this is like a situation yeah, as box. Yeah, it is. I, I hadn't heard of that, but you're right. Yeah, that's very similar. So, I mean, they are. They're, you know, they're, they're painted or in some cases built. Like I have one that I'm doing about the Trail of Tears, um, which is the... What's the Trail of Tears? The Trail of Tears is when... Um, Basically, the U.S. people, the settlers in the U.S. needed more land, so they decided we'll take it from the Native American tribes. So they, it was the, uh, the displacement of five tribes in the southeastern U.S. So depending on which history you read, some history says 17,000 people died on the Trail of Tears or were, were forcibly displaced from their land. But like if you, you know, obviously, the victors write the history, right? So I guessed it was probably closer to 50,000 people. Um, and so I decided to make, this is nuts, don't ever do this, um, but I decided to make a game with 50,000 hand-painted pieces. And so, I, my, and my reasoning being that, like, I want you to look, like, and the game is called One Falls for Each of Us. And I want people, you know, we think about what happens to these big groups of people. I want somebody to actually see what 50,000 looks like. Like, what does 50,000 pieces look like? And I had somebody suggest to me, like, oh, well, you should put them at least, like, put them on mats so there's, like, a 1,000 taped to a mat or something yeah. like that. And I thought, no, you know, fuck you. You're going to move 50,000 pieces if you want to play my game. So, <laughs> so I'm now at, um, at 35,000 painted pieces. Uh, and I'll get there. I mean, I'll get there before I die, I hope. And if not, I'll will them to my kids and then they'll finish the game. <laughs> um, but it's like, I, I love that idea. And then um, in, in just showing how these, these, these tragic situations, like it, it gives people a chance to, to experience them um, and to, to, you know, sort of, it, I don't, it's sort of like you're slightly removed from it but yet you can see it and it's really impactful because you know you can't, uh, a movie, a, a book, all these things aren't interactive. You can't feel your agency on those things, but you can see your agency and you can see the systems move and you can see fundamentally how these things were wrong and maybe how these things also have, have had, not maybe, they were wrong, but you can, see how, um, you can see how these patterns tend to repeat themselves through time. What I find really interesting about <clears throat> your idea and how it's, as well, how it's similar to art is we think of games as being fun. Yeah. And when you introduce 50,000 pieces, I'm not having fun. <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah. it's laborious and, and true, I'd imagine through the sheer pain and effort of dealing with 50,000 pieces, I now have to reflect on what we're dealing with, what the subject matter is. Um, could you speak about, because it's one thing you do talk about, we were all speaking about it backstage, 
viewing video or viewing games as art. And 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 you were talking about um you know, a book is allowed to do this, a film is allowed to explore this theme and this pain, but all of a sudden you start fucking bringing games into it and people are like, whoa, you can't have a game about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing too because, you know, people tend to think of games as sort of kids' play, even though culturally they weren't. You know, the first, the first board games that we see showing up are actually, uh, for adults, they're parlor games. And then we have electromechanical games, which are also for adults. So by the time video games are all around, at some point in time we start thinking of them as video game must be fun and it must be for kids. And if it doesn't fit both of those things, then it's a problem. And we wouldn't, we would say, for instance, like Grand Theft Auto is completely wrong and obviously we can't have that, but we can have Reservoir Dogs and let's talk about maybe giving that an Oscar, right? Um, yeah. And so, so I, you know, I think games, like any medium, should have the right to that full range of the human experience. Uh, one of the games that I, I think is uh, breathtaking, I've, ta I, yeah, I've talked about this before, I, I, to me I don't know that another game will top it, it's called That Dragon Cancer. Um, and it's, it is a devastating game. It is a game, uh, it's made by the Green family. It was about their son's, uh, young son's battle with cancer. Uh, he dies and then, um, and then the game is about a, their struggle with their faith. And it is breathtaking, breathtaking. Incredibly generous of this family to do this. And, and I've had people say like, how could they possibly do this? But yet at the same time, Eric Clapton makes a song about his son's death yeah. and that's, that's incredible. And so, you know, I, I feel like uh, we're just, it's just where we are in history, right? That, that right now this is, this is how we view games as these fun diversions instead of this, this art form that is interactive, that has the potential to do anything. Um, and I would expect that my kids, you know, they have, they have availed of all kinds of technology and that if they want to express themselves and there's something that they want to say, Games are just going to be one of the ways they can express it, or music, or books, or whatever. Um, one thing I find strange, though, is why do you think violence was the one thing whereby if, if society views games as this is fun and it's very much kids, but here's a game where you're shooting people in the face, but that's fine. Because you deal a lot as well with, uh, you're like an authority on sex within games. Why is violence okay in games, but the idea of, like the only sex that I only remember in games was, it was very much objectification. Mm -hmm. Like Duke Nukem, that was the first time I saw a pair of tits in a game. Mm -hmm. But then my second experience was when Grand Theft Auto, San Andreas, hot the hot coffee mod, where there was, there was a leaked mod in this game, it never got released, but where your central character could physically have sex. You're literally making them have sex. And this was seen as utterly unacceptable. Like you could, you could drive up and character that could have sex done to them, that was okay. But as soon as you're putting the control and the agency to go do the most natural thing in the world. And the thing is, it wasn't problematic. It's you're going on a date with someone in the game and having consensual sex. Yeah, it, but it then, was after the fifth date as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was. That's the thing. That's the thing. But in the same game, it was perfectly acceptable. You'd, you know, roll up, get a sex worker, and most people 
would shoot the sex worker afterwards to get the money back. Yeah. That's what so most people did in the game. It's like, you just gave her the money, you can just shoot her and take it back. That was fine. But then you have consensual sex where you're engaging with it and, and you're controlling. Like, what the fuck is that about? You know, this is probably not an expected answer, but I, my answer is that's American culture. Gun culture. Um, so, like, if you look at other cultures, other ratings bodies, say, in the U.S., uh, the ratings body, you can get much more violence than you can have sex for an M rating. If you go to, say, Germany, it's the other way around, right? Like, you can't have a ton of violence in the game. In fact, until very recently, you couldn't show blood in a game in Germany. I can understand why the Germans are a bit like that, yeah. considering what... <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's... I think... The U.S. is one of the primary makers of games, right? And so I think what you are seeing is, is a reflection of societal acceptance. Um, and now, I, you know, I think it's Here's just to interrupt, because it just came into my head. Is it possible that the acceptance of violence within U.S. games is a symptom of American violent colonialism, of a culture of pushing kids towards the military and expanding? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the U.S. military do use games now to train train kids, don't they? Yeah. The yeah. very first, America's Army. Yeah. The very yeah. first first person shooter was called Maze War, developed by the U.S. government. To train. Um, I don't know if it was used to train. I mean, it must. Why else would they build it? You know. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think I think if you look at uh, if you look at responses like you did this, we're gonna you know that's it. We're gonna beat you up, we're going to bomb you, that sort of stuff, that that sort of, that gets into the general, uh, just the general culture. So, you know, I don't know, I, I know a lot of, I know, I have a head full of wizardry trivia, a head full of sex and games trivia, uh, fascination with criminal empires, but I, I think you're right, but I don't know enough to say yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tell us, like, you said Japan's pretty good for sex games. Oh, well, they, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. What's that about? Um, I don't know. Like, as soon as you like, said Like, is it a shameful thing? Is it, like, if, here's the thing. If my mother walked in on me looking at porn, I'd be embarrassed, but I'd just say to her, Ma, I'm an adult. It's porn, Okay. If she walked in on me playing a porn game, I would have to leave the country. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, it's, there would be a definite sense of shame around it. And I, I think what the, sh the shame with playing a sex game is you're supposed to be doing it in real life. And there's I'm a sense of... But like, what, why in Japan? It's, it's perfectly normal in Japan. There's a bunch of sex games. Well, there's yeah, a bunch of hentai games. <laughs> fucking women. Like that. No. The only reason that I'm laughing is because the game that I don't even know if you were there, but the game we were talking about backstage, it's called, this is terrible. There's a game called Boonga Boonga, which is a fisting game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's an arcade game, like with, like for your, it's a real game. <laughs> this is a real game. How do you win? Well, it involves your fist, for starters, but it's, it's you an actual, the end. it's a stand-up. I'll go with that. Um, 
but yeah, Japan has, there's so many games. Wait, so is it literally games. in an arcade and you... <laughs> wow. There's, okay. And it's not the only one, actually. Oh, yeah, it's not the only show. one. There's another game called... Oh, what was that game called where the boob controllers... Yeah. Start with a letter C. Oh, it was made by Atari. No, Nolan Bushnell, remember? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's, anyway, there's a game... Like, that, that doesn't sound to me like a game whereby... It's about sexual pleasure. It, to me, it seems more like a funny humor and a healthy humor around sex. That, yes. And I don't even think that they, the boob controllers, they just decided, I think it started out as just a joke. Like joysticks look, right? So, <laughs> and so let's make a controller that looks like a boob. But um, no, a lot of Japan stories, a lot of hentai stories, they're dating sims or they're like pornographic stories that have choices and stuff like that so that's it for the most part the real like the real sort of ed more edgier sex games um were on the zx spectrum and that was a huge market for sex games as well you worked on a game a playboy game i did yeah what's the crack with that what the fuck how do you win a playboy <laughs> game well so you know what this is such a funny like i accidentally made the end line is i accidentally made a playboy game that women liked um, <laughs> which is not your goal when you're trying to make it. So I came onto the project actually when it was already in the works and because games were, you know, first of all, kids can't have them so it couldn't be too racy or it couldn't be sold in stores. Yeah. So the game, instead of being this fantasy, like here you are with all these beautiful women and you get to do what everybody at the time thought Hugh Hefner did, the game was about being a magazine publishing magnet. Right ah. and like nobody says like I want to be Hugh Hefner why because I want to publish magazines right like <laughs> nobody says that right like and so the game like you you did you did photo shoots and you published the magazine and you had all these beautiful women walking around and there were missions and quests but it you know it it ended up being not what I know people thought it was in their head like a good if it had been if if it had been what it could have been it would have been. Um, people would have gone to like GameSpot or whatever, not GameSpot, yeah, whatever, why can't I think of the name of that? Well, anyway, somewhere. I don't think people buy games in shops anymore. Yeah, anyway, they would have gone to Steam um, or, or whatever, <laughs> but they would, have, they would have like put the game in a little brown bag and put it under their arm and been embarrassed to walk out. That would have been a success. But instead, I think like there was obviously a disconnect, you know, so. Yeah. Um, but it was still fascinating, like getting to meet Playboy bunnies and like in, in learning about, like I, because I just become obsessed with any topic I'm making a game about, I learned so much stuff about Hugh Hefner and the things that he did that people don't know, like the stuff. Come he on, did tell us some of them. Sure, well, all right. So Hugh Hefner was instrumental in getting, uh, you didn't, at the, t at the time, you could not transport birth control across state lines, and, which was obviously ridiculous. And so he was instrumental in getting that across. Um, you people wouldn't allow, they thought it was just, you couldn't obviously have a black person on TV and he thought that was bullshit. Um, and so he made sure he did that a whole lot. Um, uh, he was, he started the Playboy Jazz Festival, which, which gave rise, it, you know, gave rise to uh, just, well, I mean, everybody knows the Playboy Jazz Festival had a huge impact. Um, he published stories that people were not going to even come close to considering, like Ray Brad Bradbury's uh, yeah. Fahrenheit uh, 451 was first premiered in Playboy magazine. And the first, do you know who the first centerfold of Playboy was? Do you? Go on, no. Marilyn Monroe. 
Wow. Yeah, beautiful, genuinely beautiful photographs. Um, so I, at one point in time, had the largest Playboy collection of anybody I knew. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, how do you think virtual reality is going to change games? Is it one of these things where it could be a gimmick or is it genuinely the future? Uh, it's going to be the future for, I guess, a lot of different areas, you know, like medicine, um, doing remote operations um, for learning, like being able to teach people in VR. Um, you can feel like you can actually touch something or feel like you're doing real interaction. Um, and games are going to have to be developed for VR, you know, kind of differently than they are for, for consoles and PCs and mobile devices. So um, the industry hasn't gotten to that point yet where they've figured out the right way to design games that, that, um, that are, I guess, that make sense for that kind of, that kind of interface. Uh, they keep on trying, you know, and there have been billions of dollars dumped into VR. Um, but nothing has come out, other than really great hardware, nothing has come out uh, game-wise that is like the killer app. There's not a not really yeah. of VR yet. Um, but when somebody makes it, then everybody's going to know that like, this is the way forward. Like but this there's is really there's cool stuff happening. Like in medicine, there's incredibly cool stuff happening. I've seen that, but I have a, a dystopian, ter uh, a terrifying dystopian fear about. So I was looking at virtual reality surgery, which is the thing they're developing at the moment. And so it's also so they have this keyhole robot mm -hmm. that's far more dexterous than human hands. So the surgeon is wearing this VR thing and they're controlling this robot to be able to make incisions that are so clean, right? But I have this fear that in 50 years time, what will happen is that someone in like the developing world, right, is gonna be able to train perfectly as a surgeon, right? And they learn how to operate using the VR things. And then what will happen is they'll develop this app in like Europe and America, where if you want surgery now, it's like you go to this clean surgery and there's no doctor, there's just this robot operating you. And then they're paying these people in the developing world fucking nothing to virtual reality operate on you. And it's like Airbnb for surgery. <laughs> but like, th that's what will happen. You know, like, it as will. you were going through that, I was thinking like, no, this is never, like, holy shit, that could happen. Of course it could. Yeah. But they're going to think, how can, if you look at everything, uh, what's wrong with apps, it's like, how can we make the least amount of money and fuck over the poorest people possible? Mm. So you'll have these highly trained people earning absolutely nothing in a different part of the world. And our surgery is now way, way cheaper, which works in terms of, if you consider in a private, a, a public health insurance funding no longer going into it. And it's like, this is how we get our appendix taken out. Someone does it halfway across the world, but that person's not being paid and it's just robots and drones. It's possible. It it's is hundred yeah. percent. And I'm just, the reason I'm predicting is I'm going, Capitalism is really, really bad, and it usually prevails. Um, I'll be thinking about that for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's totally possible. Uh, but I, 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 do you know what you need to start doing? Taxing the fucking robots, because here's the thing. <laughs> no, but there's a, a, do you know Camille, uh, that, that Thai restaurant in Ireland? Camille, do you have them in Galway? Yeah. So, so, well, there's one in Limerick, so fuck ye. 
Um, but they, there's Camille. They have them in Limerick, and they have them in Cork, and they have them in Dublin. Don't know if they're coming to Galway yet. <laughs> but it's just a Thai restaurant. But they're after announcing, they're after tying up with an Irish drone company, and Camille, within the next year, are going to start delivering Thai food with drones, which is brilliant, because you get your fucking, you know, your Thai food out the back garden. But... It's like they're obviously now replacing workers with robots. You need to tax the robot as if it's a person. The employer still has the incentive of it being cheaper, but tax the fucking robot, tax its labor, and then give us all universal basic income. Yeah, I go for that. <laughs> but it makes sense, because we all grew up with this idea of, like the Jetsons, the robots are gonna do everything and we'll all get to relax. It's not like the robots take everyone's fucking job and we just eat peanuts off trees. <laughs> Um, peanuts don't grow on trees they're actually <laughs> botanically classed as a legume and they're not even a nut they're related to the potato <laughs> is there any RPG game, RPG game that either of you really wish that you created or worked on RPG game well, or well, any fucking game Well, I wish I'd made Minecraft Minecraft, yeah? Yeah. Do you play it? Yeah, yeah. But why like is Minecraft so popular with children? Uh, well, it's like digital Legos, you know, it's, 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 uh, but it's in a world that's already formed and you can change it. Um, and there's adventure, you know, going down into the dark caverns and attacking skeletons and zombies and, you know, going into the nether and trying to get to the ender dragon. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a really cool game. It's, it's amazing. Who plays Minecraft? I haven't gotten around to it. Um, do you ever look at... Like, I have a theory that Twitter is the world's biggest uh, massive multiplayer online role-playing game. You're not far from it. Where, because if you think of it, people get really... Like, if, if, if someone was to ask someone in real life about their Twitter account, it creates a very awkward moment where people feel ashamed. Because on Twitter, people create a hyper-real, exaggerated version of themselves of their most extreme political opinions or their most extreme this. And I think it's actually just like fucking World of Warcraft for politics. It kind <laughs> of, RP, yeah, like yeah. I, you know, Twitter, um, there, was, there was a time when, when you signed up for an account that you would be recommended, like, do you like games? Yes, follow these people, and you'd select them. And I was one of those people that they recommended. So I got a ridiculous amount yeah, of followers. Yeah, loads of followers, yeah. And so that had a totally opposite effect on me. It means any time, like, I, if I tweet something, it's just like I need to think about, like, what are the 75 ways this can go terribly wrong yeah. and come back on me? So it does feel like, who is, what is my role on Twitter? What is are that? you making game choices? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so absolutely. I, you know, I have to think about that. And it's also, there's another game developer, Cliff Blazinski, and I'm paraphrasing him here. He, he, he made Gears of War. And he said, on twi reading, twi reading comments or reading Twitter or you know, comments directed at you at Twitter is like taking a garbage can lid off and breathing deep. <laughs> right? and, you know, like it's, sometimes that's really true. I mean, I love that I'm, that I'm one tweet away from finding out the most weird fact in the world that somebody's going to know just because I asked about it. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, you are just, it's really like a, a digital front door that anybody can say anything that they want. Um, are you lads concerned at all about 
what's the name of it? Someone fucking asked me. What, do you know when you have an app and there's a never-ending amount of things you can buy? Microtransactions. Yeah. How do you feel about microtransactions and gaming? It's really yeah. fucking shit as well with some games. Like I got the new, um, the new Tom Clancy game. What, what is it? Wildlands or Borderlands? Breakpoint. Breakpoint. And it's like I, I'm not spending thirty quid on a gun that doesn't exist in real life. I don't like, spend anything in that game. I love not, it. Neither do I. But like the temptation, and same with Grand Theft Auto Online, like using real money to advance yourself in a game and I, I, I have to be so careful that I don't cross the threshold because there's so much cool shit that I want yeah. a plane or a fucking flying bike and I don't <laughs> want to do like it would, if I want a flying bike in Grand Theft Auto I'm talking six months of in-game work or I could spend 50 quid yep. do you know what I mean like is that troubling it, tr it troubles me I would to me, I guess there's, I see it from multiple sides. I see it from, uh, I see it as a parent, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, can I have 10 bucks for whatever? So, yeah. you know, we get, we get constantly pinged for that sort of stuff. And then I, I see it as a game developer and this is the, the longer tale and that people are interested in season two of something and there's new content. And then there's the other game development stuff that, so this isn't stuff that, that we do, um, but stuff that I'm not a fan of, uh, where you, especially like if loot boxes, like I give you this thing, you're, you've got it, and you just have to pay for the key to open it. That's like, yeah. that is, I mean, you're really dealing with like the genuine psychological, like a compulsion, like I've got this thing, I just need to get this key. And you believe that there's something in there and what's in there is them wanting your money. Yeah. Right? And so, so that, you know, that sort of stuff I, I don't like. And then there's also this weird situation that we've got ourselves into as game developers, which is here, have the game for free. But, it's, well, but game development, believe me, isn't for free. It costs money. So, how do we, so it's sort of like if a restaurant said, come on in and eat for free. Oh, did you want a table? Did you want a plate? Well, and do you mean like you uh, player unknown battlegrounds or what's that huge one that's Fortnite? Like Fortnite's Fortnite, a free yeah. game, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Like, is, is there elements of that that's troubling? Like, it's a game here. Uh, you it's just pay, you pay for clothes and stuff. That's it. I mean, it's cosmetics because nobody can actually get mad that you paid to win that game. Yeah, you can't pay, pay to, to win. You can pay to look difficult. cool. Yeah. <laughs> but you can pay to win on Grand Theft Auto Online. Yeah, so, yeah. I, you know, those... Can you play to win on that one? Yeah, I can buy a jet and be a prick to a bunch of people if I have a hundred yeah. quid. Like, I, I, I can. Like, but I, there's I, no winning, right? It's just, you, you can't it's really just win. You, you just... Yeah, you, you can bully better yeah. if, if you yeah. have real-life money. Um, another thing as well, and it's something... So, I, I, I'm, I, I, I don't play that much online games because I don't like eight-year-olds calling me a prick. <laughs> but but mainly it, it, it's it's mainly just because I come from a tradition of I just love single player and I love immersing yeah, myself in a world mm -hmm. and I love treating it like it's a novel or something and just it's a private space. Well, it changes like what how I find is it it fundamentally changes how I think about creating that game as a designer. So if I want to make, we'll just say, I want to make this game, and I want you to enjoy this game, and your entire experience is contained in that, that's really controlled. Yeah. And, I, and I, that I feel I can do well. But when I have to leave all these doors open, or I'm going to give you this for free, but I need to somehow get 50 bucks out of you, then it creates all kinds of weird design choices that, that are not so much about 
you enjoying the game, but me trying to make you spend money by putting weird yeah. pressure on you. So that that type of game design isn't like we've worked in the we worked we worked on Facebook games before, um, which was a fascinating time. Like it was the only time in my history it, in the game industry where I was actually the main demographic, right? So forty three year old women were the the core demographic. Is that like right? Farmville and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, it was a great thing. Like. It was a great time because 500. Wait, that's probably. But is wrong. that not what caused Trump to be elected? <laughs> Farmville caused Trump I, to yeah, be elected. Yeah, I, I heard that. Fa no, I'm serious, lads. <laughs> okay, so Facebook wanted these games so that they had better access to people's data, and apparently, games like Farmville. There was a gangster video game. They allowed a lot of access to people's profiles, and it was <clears throat> this data that Cambridge Analytica purchased in order to influence people in the election. Oh, so Jesus, it was actually. Jesus, I feel so guilty. But um. one thing, just to go back to, because it just popped into my head, online versus single player, and it, I, I, I have to ask myself all the time, why don't I like online games? And what I've found is that. Online games bring to me unhealthy, toxic emotions mm. that I'm trying to fucking escape. When I go to a game, I want to feel freedom, I want to feel power, and I want to feel escape. But when I'm playing against other human beings, now <clears throat> I'm envious. Now I'm angry. Like, I'm mm. never getting angry with, uh, <clears throat> what you call them, NPCs? Yeah. I'm not getting angry with a non-playable character. <laughs> yeah. But if it's some fucking prick from Cork, <laughs> and he's after shooting up my car. I'm now all of a sudden road rage, driving down the road, wanting to shoot this man from Cork. And I have toxic emotions that I'm trying to escape in real life. Or I might see someone from, from Leitrim in a jet. And I, I feel jealous that this person has got this jet and I can't afford it yet. And now this is the shit that I'm trying to deal with in my real life. And I'm feeling it hyper online and it's like that's not what I'm playing video games for I'm trying to get away from this shit I'm play trying to not think about my neighbor's Mercedes <laughs> play Candy Crush ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. Hello. Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Candy Crush. <laughs> yeah. But you do you play against people in Candy Crush? That's it. You're just trying to level up. You're just trying to get to the next level. That's just fucking Tetris on a boner, though. Isn't <laughs> <Yeah>. it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's lots, you're not killing anyone. There's lots of people who like to play games for exactly that reason. You know, they really? Like, oh, what? yeah. They only want to destroy other people. I mean, like, I don't know if that's playing, good. Playing, well, I mean, the GAA <laughs> is fundamentally one team playing against another. Just because there's electricity in a video game doesn't mean it's not a game. Actually, that's true. I, yeah, but the thing is, though, if to be a good sports person... A good sports person overcomes the toxicity and, and true, is able yeah. to do a professional. I just, I don't know, maybe it's just me. I, I want to escape. When I play a single player game, I want to escape. And what, what breaks my heart about online stuff too is, in particular what it did to Rockstar Games. Like, I fucking love Grand Theft Auto. 
I loved uh, Grand Theft Auto 4, and I specifically loved the expansion packs they made. They had uh, Battle of the Gay Tony and The Last and the Damned, which is like, with Grand Theft Auto, they create this huge city, and then it's like, here's an opportunity to put other stories there. But then as soon as fucking Grand Theft Auto uh, 5 happened, there's no, it's like, here's a perfect representation of California. It's massive. The main story only explored this part of the map, and now it's just online, and they've made this really shit online game with flying motorbikes. <laughs> like, the same with Red Dead Redemption 2. Red Dead Redemption 2 is the closest I've ever, ever come to a novel mm. as a video game. And when I'm going around that countryside, I'm seeing all the potential stories. Like, I see a little shack on a hill, and there's a dude living in there. And I'm like, I want to fucking know about him. And I want to play his struggle, and I want to learn what their struggle is. And we were talking about... Um, there's a Native American presence in the game. Mm, like, yeah. where's my huge expansion pack where I get to play as Native Americans and learn about the culture and what was taken away instead of just Red Dead Online, which is a fucking joke. <laughs> they I didn't mean, turn it into an educational game, but they could. They could. They really <laughs> they could. could have like. that expansion. I mean, like, I, there is. There's an actual... But there's no, I'm guessing there's just no money, and that's why they're not doing it. So it goes back to capitalism. Um, and fundamentally, like, if you... Let's just say that every one of those stories that you want to be told, like once you're told the story, the story's done. Yeah. Right. And so game developers or game publishers will say well, that's a treadmill. So you got the player on the treadmill and you always have to, there's always new content that has to be developed for that treadmill. Whereas, which is expensive. Which is expensive, right? And when it's one and done versus uh, creating an online experience. Um, in, in, in creating, creating a world in which a bunch of different players can come in and those players are always getting better, it's always a different experience, you've always got new players coming in and going out. Um, I'm not justifying this, by the way, because I also like to play solo single-player yeah. games. Um, that's my prep. Like even when I go into massively multiplayer worlds, like I remember going into World of Warcraft the first time and I'm like, what are you people doing in my world? Yeah. Right? Like I want to explore this place and can the rest of you leave, which is yeah. obviously not going to happen. Um, the, pro the problem with story-based games is people can make Let's Play videos and you don't need to buy it anymore. Yeah, you just so watch it on really, YouTube. That's a huge that's challenge true too. Right So now. no one yeah. wants to fund that kind of game. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah how, how do you feel about... So, so much of my interaction with games is watching people playing them on YouTube and this, I decide whether I want to buy a game based on this. Like, is it, is it helpful to games or is it unhelpful? Like, wh why... If I... I don't know, if Lady Gaga released a new album and I decided to upload onto YouTube, here's me listening to Lady Gaga's new album, mm. they're going to take it down pretty yeah. fucking quickly. Yeah. Why with games is just like totally allowed and encouraged? And is it good or bad? And how do you feel about it if there's a big let's play of your next release? Well, as long as the, the game is not linear and you're giving the whole thing away, then, then that's fine, you know? And we tend to make games that are not linear like that. So publishers somebody's experience like when, yeah, when, yeah, publishers want games that are different every time somebody runs them. So you watch somebody playing the game, but that's, not, that's that guy's play, but no one else's. Because if you get it and you play it, your experience will be totally different than, than theirs. So it's, it's valid to see a preview of what you could experience if you bought it, it's knowing also, that it's different. Sorry, I mean, it's also super valuable on the one side, it's super valuable if, like, how the hell do you play this game? And then you go, why? Especially for, like, some complex strategy games. I go and watch that and, oh, that's how you do it. That's interesting. 
Um, but then, on the flip side, there are these narrative games, like That Dragon Cancer, for instance, um, or um, Life is Strange, or any game that's story What Remains of Edith Finch. What Remains of Edith Finch. And that, you, you give away the entire thing. Yeah. And in, in that, that is crippling to developers. It is, you know, it is exactly uploading Lady Gaga's album, and, and it's, um, and I don't know, like, I don't know, I don't know why people can do that. Um, but it, it and is, there's huge money to be made for people. Huge losses, huge, huge. Oh, there's huge money to be made from them. People playing, playing the video content. games are Absolutely. making the most money of anyone online right now. And I think that's, I think that's great. I'm all for people doing that. It, it's when they they basically sit there and are doing the equivalent of reading a book. Yeah. And the argument that I often hear about that is that people will say, yeah, but they weren't going to buy the game anyway. Well, I've seen some major YouTubers who will have 21,000, 20, sorry, 21 million views of a Let's Play of a narrative game. Well, what if, like, if 1% of those people bought the game, that's enough to make another prototype to make the next game. Yeah. You know, so it's, so I, I, I don't think it's right, um, and I don't know why it's allowed. I'm, I'm sure there's some, I'm sure there's, I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me, actually. I mean, I, I should probably look further into that. Do you want to be the Metallica of games who gets this shit shut down? <laughs> <laughs> Napster. Oh, yeah. No, it's my immediate reaction to that, which is just makes no sense, is, no, I want to be the Black Sabbath. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Invent it. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't imagine either Tony Iommi or, Blacks or fucking uh, Ozzy caring about Napster. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> It was one of those things that made Metallica seem really uncool. It was like, don't let us know you're that capitalist. <laughs> it's we expect Lars. This. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Lars and his art that he doesn't appreciate. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a very specific reference to a documentary about Metallica. <laughs> one thing that I'm starting to notice recently with, within larger video game culture, right, is, and especially, again, I'm drawn back to Rockstar with this. So as games get larger and, like... The last Red Dead Redemption, the last uh, Grand Theft Auto were fucking huge. Mm. Like, one of the biggest things that people spoke about with Red Dead Redemption 2 is that your horse's testicles shrink depending on the temperature. <laughs> and it was an amazing level of detail, but what I found is, when I first found that out, I was like, holy fuck, your horse's balls shrink when it gets cold. I shared it online, and a lot of other people were sharing it too, but what happened then is you, you found yourself getting shamed because that <laughs> level of detail was being equated with workers being exploited. And there was a lot of people working for Red Dead Redemption 2 who were saying we're being overworked. Crunching. Yeah, yeah the, the, uh, cr crunching in the hours. And all of a sudden now, to celebrate detail is something you have to be cautious about because you wonder, does this detail mean exploitation? What does the games industry need to do to stop this going on, especially with the larger, the big larger franchises? where developers are just going, this isn't fucking fun, and I don't feel valued, and I feel overworked. Yeah, it's, it, it's a huge issue in the game industry, in part because we're, we're trying to create something that's not been made before. Yeah. So, um, like, if I, if I show you, here's, here's the game they originally pitched, and here's what's going to be released. Those things are, are decently far apart from one another. But yet, at this point in time, that's when I have to say how many people, how much time, well, here's what we're going to do. Every single milestone, 
Uh, and you can, there's, you know, in some cases you're with a publisher. Uh, I would say we work with Paradox, they've been great. You know, so as we've talked about, you know, this would really make the game better. And um, what if we change this to this? And as you're trying to, ex you're, you're exploring a space you've never explored before and you're trying to make something as good as you can, then there's other sides to that where it's, you'll see like, well, that's tough. This is the amount of time we have. And so people, nobody goes into games um, because they, this is gonna sound ridiculous, but nobody goes into games because they wanna make money. It's, it is absolutely a calling. Can people hit it really big in games? Absolutely. But if you're a programmer and you want, and, and you, if you work for a bank, you're gonna make more money than you make in games. Mm -hmm. Because games is like, games is what people just really wanna do. Um, and, and nobody wants to program bank software, I guess. And so, you know, so they, they pay higher to draw people there. Um, so it's, it's, you know, people are incredibly passionate about it. And so it's like, Jesus, if I just stay here a couple hours longer, I can get this to work. And, and that's sort of, and then this built into this culture of like, you know, like yeah, you know, I worked 18 hours. How much did you work, yeah. you know? And, and I, can, I can tell you now, man, I'm 53 and 18 hour days don't cut it with me. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's not something like, I, I wanna see my kids grow up. And so, you know, I wanna, I wanna be there with them. I wanna read books, I wanna go on vacations. And so it's something that we work really hard at not to do. Uh, and I, it is, there was a time in the industry, I would say probably around mid 90s, when it was sort of at its peak. But now, when people are interviewing, they're often asking, you can tell me about the quality of your life. Can you tell me about crunch? You know, can I talk to your employees about this? And um, so there are some times when it's, you're on a deadline and there's something goes wrong <laughs> because life yeah. happens. So you find yourself working longer hours than you would like to but these sustained what we would call crunch periods where it is months on end of everyday work, um, you know, that's, that's non-tenable. It ruins people's brains, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's not good. And there's, especially for really big budget games, um, you know, it's, it, it's a complicated problem, right? Because it's a lot of money that goes into that and every month there's, you know, probably hundreds of thousands in burn rate, the amount you're paying for people. And it's, it's a pure capitalistic problem. Um, but you know, sometimes people push the schedules to give people more time to do it. You can also, games don't have to be, they don't have to be that big. You don't have to have all of this stuff in it. There's something that can be cut off and left till later. Um, you know, the movie doesn't have to be eight hours long. It could be two hours long and then release another one. Um, what, what industries do you think gaming can learn from to try and stop this? Well, I guess TV, uh, make something into episodes. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. You know, we're doing that already. We've been doing it for a really long time. It's just that when they make gigantic games like Red Dead Redemption um, or GTA or stuff like that that's just really massive, if it's going to have a, an impact on the workforce that's negative, they need to make a call to cut. You know, yeah. you basically have to, uh, you have to say the time that is spent on the game, uh, that's finite. That's not going to get more, right? So what actually can get done within that amount of time and by a certain date is what's going to ship. So you have to predict the future. Uh, things are going to go wrong and just assume that things are going to go wrong by 20%. And, uh, and that's where your game is going to end. You know, and if people put in more time, then maybe they can add a few things to the game. But you have to basically just be realistic about this is what we can expect from everybody and nothing more. And, uh, and they'll do a better job because they get sleep. <laughs> you know, yeah. sleep, sleep does wonders. Um, I'm going to open up questions now to the audience. 
Can we have the house lights up slightly? No, says one man over there. <laughs> um, slightly more. Have we got a microphone somewhere, actually, before? Yonder. Yep. Anyone have a question down here? I don't think there's a mic upstairs, so you'll have to roar the question and I'll repeat it. There is one upstairs. Oh, there is one. Oh, fucking class. Look right. at this. Galway. <laughs> um, who's got a question? It can, it can be about games. It can be about anything. It can be about otters. At the very, very back there. The otters of Galway. Hold on. We, we got a microphone for you. Usher has got the microphone. And we've got Ja Rule up there. <laughs> Thanks, Will. How are um, you? I wanted to ask a bit more about your crunch periods. Because I'm an architect student myself, so I know about the whole 6 a.m. in the morning, trying to get yourself done for the next morning. Like, how do you find catching in with your sleep and getting to the next period and getting to your targeted points? And how do you kind of balance your, kinda, your working life and your social life and your mental health with that and your sleep? And kind of fitting everything in together. Well, we try to go home at six, something yeah. like that. Um, and uh, basically, we have a producer who handles the schedule. And when uh, people are going to, they will never be on time. <laughs> Her job is to deal with that time flux. And, uh, you know, people have issues, you know, they might have someone, they might get sick, they might have someone in their family get sick, something might happen to them. You know, that's going to happen. You have to just know that that will happen. And the goal is to not uh, overwork people just because now there's less work getting done. You just figure out what can we change in the game or cut in the game or, or delay releasing until after uh, ship. Um, and so you, you know, or maybe somebody is going to get done earlier and you can shift some of the work over that person, they can get it done. So it's a whole lot of schedule um, juggling with these tasks and, and who can do them. Not just because you have 20 programmers doesn't mean any of those programmers can do a certain task. It's usually extremely specialized. Any task on a game, only a couple people can do that task, even if you have 20 people in that, you know, in that discipline. Um, but basically, it, it, it just comes down to um, knowing that you know, quality of life is more important than trying to ship a game that has all of these features. Let's, let's change the features until we have to cut a feature or, or, or make it half of what it was or you know, whatever can get done. And uh, those decisions are always made with the publisher who's paying for the game to get, to get built. So you have to have a lot of meetings with the publisher and say, we have less time because these issues happen, so we have to change this to this or we have to cut this. What do you guys think? And they might have some ideas. They might say, that's cool. Um, but we haven't had our publisher ever uh, tell us that we must get this thing done or, or else. Um, I think so the, the, it's interesting because I had a totally different, a totally different, like whatever you said <laughs> made me truly think about something that happened just, yeah, it was either yesterday or the day before. So I, I don't know where in my head, there's like a person who lives in my head, I swear, who says like, your time actually doesn't matter. It's how much, you have 24 hours, how much shit can you pack in there? And I think it has to do with growing up poor. It's like, oh, there's an opportunity to make money. I better go get it, because what if I don't do that? Um, and so I'm always constantly thinking of what I can do. And I was asked, I was asked the other day if I would uh, speak to this, this group of uh, young, young coders, young female coders, and it was just sort of my, my soft spot. And, and it, it was on a weekend. 
uh, and, I, and I said no. Um, and man, I still feel guilty about it. But I have, I have two young female coders at home. I have four kids at home. I work a lot, um, you know, we're at home, and so sometimes a, a work conversation will break out. Um, I, I play a lot of games for research, I really do. It really, really is research. But I, you know, and we end up traveling a fair bit, we try to take our kids with us, but I just thought, like, here's this beautiful Saturday when I can get up and make pancakes with my kids. And so I've started to reprioritize my life, like, no, this, there's a wall around this and nothing gets into this, that's it. If, if I'm not at a conference on the weekend, I'm at home with my kids, full stop. Do that's you ever it. stop conversations at the dinner table if something comes up from work? Uh, do you ever have to park it? Even if it's something really fucking interesting, do you have to go, no, this is- We actually do, yeah, we actually yeah. just like, okay, we're not gonna talk about work. It's too easy for work to, to seep yeah. in because yeah. we don't, like we mostly have not had a separation because we, we are a game, so. <laughs> so you know it like always happens uh, so we just basically had to just go this is like when we get home we don't need to talk about work stuff unless there's a reason like there's a, a planned having to do a video conference at home or having to actually work on something you know but most of the time we try and and not do that yeah we so I try I'm I'm yeah you know I'm, I'm constantly trying to get better at it um, but really making sure like if I, if I don't it just like if you if you don't eat enough or eat right, you will suffer for that. You know. Likewise, if if the boundaries in your own life aren't solid, like I need this much sleep, I need to do these things, um, and I've I have a long history of like not protecting my own boundaries in those regards, and so that's something I'm I'm you know this year, uh, in in fact, sort of starting at the end of last year, I've just been no, this is just no, I'm sorry, and like it's. It's okay that I want to spend that Saturday with my kids, you know? I, <clears throat> what I started doing, because obviously I, I deal with a similar thing because I'm a writer. So if I'm not careful, I could write 19 hours a day, 20 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. And what I've found is that sometimes if, if I decide, like for me, time off is playing a video game, right? Or it's watching a box set. That's not work for me. But when I was not working, I would self-flagellate and say to myself, you should be working. Mm. But what I started to do was I started to understand that for me to be creative, I have to feed my unconscious mind. Yeah. So I have to do that thing where I'm releasing. And that could mean watching fucking Saved by the Bell on YouTube. <laughs> but like, if I'm watching something that's unrelated to my work, the state of relaxation and enjoyment <clears throat> I get into when I'm doing it, that's where little ideas come from when I am working. So I've started to value it. I don't view it as skiving off. Yeah, I, funny yeah. enough, I write to relax. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, or, so you play video games to work and write I to do. relax. Yeah. <clears throat> um, any other questions? I'm, uh, do you know why my voice is gone? There was a lot of a pocket lint in my, in my vape. <laughs> and I'm after inhaling a lot of pocket lint. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> I love the way that the, the, uh, Ja Rule is working ahead of the questions and just <laughs> having it lined up. Go on. I just wanted to ask, with your own kids, do you encourage or do you limit their exposure, basically, or playtime on games and that kind of stuff? With our kids? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's not a nice place to live. I mean, um, <laughs> our kids, uh, their computers, in fact, um, two of our kids, they're in they're in their junior cert cycle and their computers live locked up. 
Um, they're not allowed to access them uh, unless I trade, <laughs> I trade them. They do two hours of study time, they get two hours of game time. Um, and, and is so, it games or social media that they're more interested in? Um, Both, so we kind of had to take the phones the away too. So we, yeah, we, we sometimes if they get bad grades, we've taken their phones away and we've made them earn them back. Um, Pretty good. You've, yeah. So you've gamified it. We, I, yeah. we actually did. Yeah. We, yeah. <laughs> we, we created, <laughs> we did. Yeah, they had to earn, uh, they had to earn respect dollars. Um, and then, <laughs> you fucking literally did. Yeah. Respect yeah. dollars. Yeah. yeah, we printed out all so these how dollars. It how so it this works. is when, when you have fucking game developer parents. <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell. So they, they had to ask. Why not just use euros? <laughs> well, because it was in the States when this happened. Okay, okay. Yeah, so they had, to, um, they had to, at the end of the day, they had to ask all the other family members, like, was I respectful to you today? <laughs> and if they were, they would get a dollar, and then they could buy their stuff back with it. It was, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> so in, like, we don't believe, uh, we don't, you know, the stuff like, oh, I can't stop playing now. Like, we know the answers to all of that stuff, so... Um, so in general, we, we try to play games with them. Like we're going to be doing uh, some game marathon this weekend. Um, but we try to get them interested in game development and the creation of games and playing board games. Um, we do. We limit their time. Absolutely. One question, right? How do you feel about games like World of Warcraft where if you're not playing it, shit happens offline? Like you could be someone could rob your house in the game and you're on the couch that, that can't happen in world of warcraft can it not mm. okay someone I, I never played it and someone yeah. told me it could yeah you can't <laughs> so do, do games exist like that where if you're yeah. not playing it bad things happen no they're protected no that's not true people would leave no like in minecraft you can go in and blow up somebody's place yeah you can what, was they're not there yeah well if we're if we're like in this like let's just say that all three of us we were in a shared realm and you're here on stage somebody could be looting the hell out of your stuff right now that's not good. Because like, I was playing Grand Theft Auto online and my nightclub become less popular because I went to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> but So what we do is like when we play with our kids, like we have all of our stuff buried you somewhere. You have to bury your <laughs> stuff you in the hide ground. It. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, so our kids are Minecraft thieves. Is, is that, I, don't, I don't like that idea of video games. I, don't like, I, I think once you're playing, you should be playing. But if you're not playing it and bad things happen... That's dangerous, isn't that's, it? That's, that, that's the design of the developer. And if you don't like yeah. it, don't play the game. Good yeah. answer. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. Um, it's half ten now, lads, and it's a Thursday. So t I just want to say to Brenda and John, thank you so much. That was fucking... All right. <laughs> incredibly insightful and... I just want to say, too, like... I'm sure you get a lot of fucking interview requests, so just thank you so much for coming here and chatting with me and, and sharing this with the audience. It's a real privilege, so thank you so much. And thank you to all of ye. It, it was just, it was a lovely room. You were all listening. God bless. It was just, it was very intimate, it was nice. Have a good night, lads.